This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us again. I think this is a very funny headline on the Washington Post. Not funny, haha. Well, a little bit funny, haha but also funny peculiar. Here's the headline. So you're being held accountable? That's not cancel culture. Have you noticed that the left has shifted what it says about cancel culture? I'm not entirely sure what their narrative was before, other than to deny that there was such a thing as cancel culture. But now they're kind of admitting that there's such a thing as cancel culture, but basically telling you that if you are a victim of cancel culture, you're just being held accountable, baby, for your terrible views and your terrible personhood. And you're just an awful human being. You're being held accountable. It's consequences. It's consequences. Now, I have a lot of examples in just the last few days on people who are getting canceled right and left, including a lot of Christian leaders over this issue of transgenderism. I'm going to get into that in just a moment. But I want to give you an example from MSNBC. And let me just say as a side note, you don't need to read the Washington Post if you watch up MSNBC because they're doing the same stuff. It's just the same stuff. Any leftist outlet, if you've seen one leftist outlet, you've seen them all because they're all getting their stuff from the same sources and the same muckrakers on the Internet. It's just how it works. It's one big game of telephone and then it's spewed out of your speakers, of your radio. Well, not your radio, but uh, of your Internet radio, maybe if you're listening to some uh, podcast of a leftist persuasion or if you're listening to the audio of an outlet like MSNBC. But let's listen to MSNBC's Ali Velsh. Talking about Missouri Senator Josh Hawley and cancel culture. Now, you'll recall last week I had read Senator Hawley's piece from the New York Post about muzzling Americans and the dangers of cancel culture. And Allie was all about making fun of Josh Hawley. Listen to cut one. This past week, before he did an interview with a top rated AM station in St. Louis and then uh, was interviewed on CNN, Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri wrote an op-ed for the fourth highest circulated newspaper in America. In all of those extremely high-profile appearances, he repeated his grievance that he is being, quote, canceled and, quote, muzzled. That's rich. The irony of Hawley freely and openly discussing his being muzzled seems lost on him as he writes about how, quote, corporate monopolies and the left team up to shut down speech like they don't like and force their political agenda on America. For those who still believe in free speech and the First Amendment, this is the time to take a stand, end quote. That's cute, complaining about being canceled while speaking on the Senate floor, complaining about shutting down free speech in a column in a major newspaper. Senator Hawley seems to enjoy taking stands. He's just not overly discerning about their being rooted in truth. And when they clearly aren't rooted in the truth, Hawley believes he bears no responsibility for what he says. Senator Hawley can apparently dish it out, but he can't take it. Now, did you notice what he didn't say? He did not comment on the fact that the left and big tech are clamping down on conservatives because that's a provable claim. He just glossed right over it. He didn't talk about that whatsoever. Oh, that's cute. Oh, that's cute. Here he was in the fourth highest circulation newspaper complaining about cancel culture. 
Well, let me ask a question here. Are you not canceled unless you're canceled by everybody? He's not canceled until he's completely canceled. Well, at that point, he'll be so canceled, he won't have any sort of venue for complaining that he's canceled. It's a trajectory of cancellation. I, I, do you think we're dumb? This is this is just an exercise in gaslighting. What's happening to all of these conservatives is not really happening. It's not really happening. He still does interviews on other networks. Is he on your network? I don't see you interviewing him. I don't know. Is he canceled on MSNBC? Probably. I don't know. I don't watch MSNBC unless I absolutely have to. So I don't really know the answer to that question. But what they're doing, really, it is classic gaslighting. What's happening to all of you conservatives? You deserve it. And by the way, it's not really happening. But if it were happening, you're deserving it. How can I deserve something that's not happening? This is a little odd to me. Let's go on and listen to the rest of what Ali Velshi had to say. Listen to cut two. Hawley's entirely self-inflicted problem started after the 2020 election and before the mob attacked the Capitol. During an interview with Fox News on January the 4th, Hawley was asked if he believed Donald Trump would still be president on January 20th. In response, he said, quote, well, that depends on what happens on Wednesday. You see, Senator Hawley was all in on the lies about election fraud and was suggesting in that Fox interview that then Vice President Mike Pence could magically change the outcome of the election. As we now know, on Wednesday, January 6th, an angry mob stormed the Capitol. Hours later, Hawley, a Yale Law School graduate who knew better, followed the insurrection by rejecting the decisions of literally dozens of judges who declared that there was no voter fraud in the 2020 elections and challenged the legitimacy of millions of legal ballots by voting to overturn the election results. Hawley now claims he wasn't looking for a different outcome, but was simply giving voice to Missourians who were concerned about allegations of fraud. Concerns Hawley himself created by repeating Trump's lies and perpetuating a dangerous disinformation campaign. Some people found Hawley's actions to be a conspiracy too far and chose to question his ethics, not publish his book, and in general, distance themselves from him. To Hawley, that is muzzling. There are actually real people muzzled from speaking their thoughts, and Senator Hawley is not in the same zip code, area code, or country code of any of them. Oh, it's a big conspiracy, you see. It's a big conspiracy. The Russiagate hoax, though, that was a fact. That was a fact because the left said it was a fact until we found out that the whole thing was a lie and it was based on a fake dossier that was funded by the Clinton campaign and that the whole thing was a hoax from the very beginning because they wanted to unseat a duly elected president. Oh, we're just going to move on from that. We're not going to talk about that. How much airtime has been given at MSNBC about an actual lie from the left to take down a duly elected president? How much has been said on MSNBC about the actual insurrections that took place for weeks and or months in major cities across this country with rioting and looting and setting businesses on fire and attacking people and killing people and setting the federal courthouse on fire in Portland, a repeated attacks there? Why don't you talk about that for a while? because that doesn't fit your political agenda. Let's go back to the bottom line take here of Ali Velshi over on MSNBC. Cut three. 
Senator Hawley seems to be mistaking the term muzzled for what, what am I thinking of? Responsibility? The accomplished and well-educated Hawley seems to believe freedom of speech means not only the right to say whatever he wants, and under no circumstances should his words carry consequences. Unlike those who are truly muzzled from speaking the truth, Hawley is protected by the First Amendment, which at last check is still very much a thing. Really? Really? The First Amendment is a thing. Do you think the First Amendment is a thing over on Twitter when all of these conservatives are flocking to other social media sites because they keep getting shut down? You think it's a thing over on Facebook where people are getting kicked off? Uh, It's unbelievable how these leftists will just cover for each other. Here's an example of some of this. And this is just from the secular side of things. We have this hashtag that's out there, and I have to admit I don't follow this particular actress, but there was a movement, Fire Gina Carano, who's, I guess, a, an actress for a Disney Plus series called The Mandalorian. And they, on you know, the Twitter mob, they wanted to fire her because she's an anti-masker when it comes to COVID and she happens to have some conservative views. Fire her! And now the people who really like her are fighting back and trying to make sure she doesn't get fired. Because, you know, if you don't believe that masks actually work, you are either A, a scientist, or B, you are somebody who actually cares about truth and not media propaganda. This is the most insane one, though. Colleen Offaline, a former agent at the Jennifer DiCiera Literary Agency, was fired after Twitter users complained that she was using anti-big tech platforms Gab and Parler. It's not even about the content of what she's putting on social media. It's the mere fact that she has accounts on Parler and Gab. Now that's enough for the Twitter mob or the Facebook mob or whatever mob happens to crop up on any day of the week to go after you and make you lose your job because Parler and Gab are far right. And, and of course, a normal conservative would say, well, if I could actually say what I wanted to say on Facebook and Twitter, I'd be over there, but they keep canceling me. So I'm going where they don't cancel me. Sorry, you're canceled. And now it's happening to Christians. I'll come back and tell you more about it. Stay with us on Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Mabel walks 18 miles to church every Sunday. She lives in Zimbabwe, where churches are widely scattered in remote regions of this African country. That's one reason why she travels so far. The other reason she walks nine miles each way is that the gospel has truly captured her heart. After coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Mabel reads and studies her Bible, and she's discovered that the gospel is meant to be shared with others. So with the help of Bible League International. She's learning to share her faith and she's helping to see a church develop closer to her village. Bibles are desperately needed in Africa and around the world right now. And you can send one to a Bibleist believer today for only $5 or $50 will send 10 Bibles. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800 Yes Word. That's 800 Y E S W O R D. 800 Yes Word. Or there's a banner to click at Janet Mefford. 
The healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not an insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org JMT or 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. What do we do about online cancel culture? I made my decision back in April of 2018, and I made another recent decision a few weeks ago. You leave. That's my solution. I wrote an article, actually, in April of 2018. Adios, Facebook. P.S. Two men can't get married. And I basically said, I'm not playing this game. I said, many people have asked me why I would leave Facebook and allow the liberals to win. I don't see leaving Facebook as allowing the liberals to win. I see it as a win for me and everyone else who decides to break things off with an out-of-control, privacy-invading, censoring leftist tech giant. Not only have we learned that the data consulting firm Cambridge Analytica was able to access information of up to 87 million million Facebook users without their permission. But now Facebook is facing a lawsuit for storing facial recognition without user consent. As disturbing as that is, it bothers me even more to see how Facebook blocks posts, censors content, and even shuts down the pages of Christians and conservatives using criteria that is not similarly employed against users whose ideology aligns with that of the left. I've covered a lot of stories of fellow Christians and conservatives banned or blocked by Facebook, but I only had one such run-in on my page. A few months ago, I posted a story about two active-duty military men who were, quote-unquote, married at West Point. And above the story, I added one comment, two men can't get married. Why did I say it? Isn't it obvious? Marriage is only between a man and a woman. And so then they flagged me and they said, we removed something you posted, doesn't follow our community standards. We remove posts that attack people based on their race, ethnicity, national origin, religious affiliation, sexual orientation, gender or disability. It's not an attack to say two men can't get married because two men can't get married. This is not really complicated. And at the end of the day, I made the call to get off Facebook. Why am I giving Facebook access to my data? People can find me on the radio. Here I am. Hi, I'm talking to you. (laughs) You don't need to read me. I understand the pull of social media and I understand why people like it. And I understand why people on the radio or on other sorts of venues want to have social media. It's fun. It lets you stay in touch with your audience. You can do this. But at what cost? Because the way things are going now, you're going to have to stop telling the truth if you want to even have an account. Are you willing to go that far? I'm not. It's why I got off Twitter. I'm done with Twitter, too. I may be done with everything before this is all over. And that's the way it's going to be, because I'm not going to not say what's true. At a certain point, if you have Facebook and Twitter telling you you can't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's hate speech, how many Christians will say, I'm out? 
versus how many Christians will say, okay, I'll tone it down and stay here just to be able to have the access to the platform and maybe I can reach some people. Of course, I can't proclaim the message that would reach some people with any dual effect, but that's okay because at least I'm still here. It's coming. I'm telling you, it's coming. I've been saying this for years. Here's some examples. You might have heard about this. Focus on the families. The Daily Citizen has now been censored on Twitter. Twitter locked the Daily Citizen for an alleged rules violation, according to Jim Daly of Focus on the Family, saying that they had posted hateful content. You know what their hateful content was? It was this. On Tuesday, this is, this is the tweet. On Tuesday, President-elect Joe Biden announced that he had chosen Dr. Rachel Levine to serve as Assistant Secretary for Health at the Department of HHS. Dr. Levine is a transgender woman. That is a man who believes he is a woman. See, I would have been more, more straightforward. His name was Richard. He's a man. He is confused. He's not a transgender woman. I wouldn't have ever even said that. He's not a transgender woman. He's a man. You know, throw me in prison. He's a man. That's the way it is. Same thing over at Facebook. Dr. Robert Gagnon, who is arguably one of the top guys when it comes to the issue of the Bible and homosexuality, was suspended from Facebook for voicing disagreement with Biden's executive order allowing trans-identifying individuals to serve in the military. This is via Christian Post. He teaches New Testament theology at Houston Baptist University. He was locked out of his Facebook account for 24 hours after he posted a comment in defense of a friend who posted a satirical commentary about Biden's executive order. Facebook suspended Gagnon's account for what it deemed as incitement to violence. (laughs) Okay. All right. Have you you ever actually have you ever actually heard Dr. Rob Gagnon? I, I can't imagine anybody less inclined to incite violence than Dr. Robert Gagnon. He is scholarly, he is professional. There's absolutely nothing violent about him. And they said he violated their community standards on violence and incitement. He said, of course I didn't incite any violence. Only one point of view is being allowed. Right. That's right. This is what happens. They also point out that Lori Higgins of the Illinois Family Institute, she was banned from Facebook because she had expressed her exasperation in a Facebook comment pointing out that women who signed up to serve in the armed forces will now have to shower and bunk with males as a, res- as a result of the executive order and referred to transgender advocacy as a cult whose goal is to spread pseudoscience globally before the truth can pull up its pants and continue to accuse Republicans of being science deniers. And she's upset. But again, why are we there? Why are we there? And then there's another thing here. This is from LifeSite News, which is a Roman Catholic pro-life site, but they have great stories here. We talk talk about some of their stories quite regularly. Twitter suspends two LifeSite accounts for calling transgender woman a man. Okay, He's a man. Uh, Twitter has again locked LifeSite News out of two of their accounts on the platform for displaying a message noting that Joe Biden's recently named Assistant Secretary of Health, Rachel, quote, around quote, quote, Rachel Levine is a man. Both accounts displayed a simple message which read, Biden names transgender woman as Assistant Secretary of Health. Rachel Levine is a father of two who divorced his wife in 2013 after 30 years of marriage. And then they have links to some articles. And the ban was imposed on LifeSite's main account and then also the We Can Defend Marriage account. Get off. Get off. 
that's my advice to you. Get off because it will only get worse. First of all, the only way that these people will learn is if it hits them in the pocketbook. And if enough people leave these sites and say, I'm out, a lot of good things will happen. First of all, it will hit them in the pocketbook. It will probably hit them in their shares as well on, on, on the stock market. So that's also something that has to do with financial pain. But here's the bigger issue. They need you more than you need them. There is something about social media that is so addictive that people actually believe they need it. They need it to survive. They need it for their business. They need it for their uh, their brand and ministry. They have to have... No, you don't. Let's create a new culture called we're out of here because you don't need it. I have not felt so peaceful since leaving social media. Honestly, it's great. I have so much less stress. Now, I have ways of aggregating the news and I'm able to continue to keep up with the news, which I obviously need to do. But I don't have to worry about constantly answering people's complaints to me or arguing with me or saying this or that or the other thing or blocking people or muting people. I don't have to deal with that anymore. And it's so great. I have that time back. You don't need it. You don't need it. And if you do want to be on social media, you can go to Parler. You can go to Gab if you want to. Parler's not back up yet. And Gab has been a little bit difficult to get on because they've had so many millions of people come on for the first time. I'm sure they'll get it all worked out. But the bottom line is you don't need it. They need you. They need you to make money. They need you to get your data. They need you in order to do all kinds of draconian, big brother sorts of things. You want to help these people? Stay on social media. You don't want to help these people? Leave. That's my advice to you. You don't need it. And I know that sounds a little bit out there, but I am telling you that the bigger principle is very important for us to get and keep in view. And that is the censorship will not stop here. Today, it's going to be for saying a man who thinks he's a woman is a man and you get banned. What will it be next? It will be it will begin to be homosexuality is a sin. You can't say that. You can't say the gospel. Who knows where it will go? But it will go there. It will. Because so far, we know Congress has no intention of reining them in. They've had all kinds of hearings. And what good has it done? They haven't gone after big tech. They haven't dealt with Section 230. They haven't passed any new law to rein in big tech and say you can't censor people. You can't. You don't have the authority to censor people's speech. That's not part of the deal. You're a publisher. Uh, you know, I mean, wh- what are we going to do about this? Congress couldn't care less. So you can stick around and get frustrated and watch them steal your followers bit by bit by bit, or thousands by thousands by thousands. They did it to me. They do it to a lot of people. You can sit around and take it or you can leave and you can deny them your business and you can say, I'm going to find a better way. I will not be a slave to these people. And I don't think any Christian should be a slave to these people. And I'm not trying to criticize these Christians who have just found themselves banned and censored. I feel for them completely. All I'm saying is get out of there. Quit hanging around because you're just going to get more of the same if you don't recognize and realize what kind of game they're playing and you don't need them. You don't. You can still write. You can still talk. You have lots of means of communication. You don't need Dorsey and you don't need Zuckerberg. Get out of there. Did I make it plain enough? (laughs) Besides, here we are on Christian radio and I can say that Rachel Levine is not a woman. See, nobody censored me. You're hearing me. 
So praise the Lord. I'm very, very glad to be able to say that freely while I still can. At any rate, I wanted to take just a second here before we have to go to the break to say thank you. We were able, through your great generosity, to save over 400 preborn lives because of your generous donations to preborn. These free ultrasounds that you're sponsoring, we are able to give these free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancy centers through the ministry of preborn. And eight out of 10 times, these women choose life. And because of you, over 400 lives are going to be saved. Praise the Lord. Thank you so much for your generosity. 855-402-BABY. If you still want to give, this is a dreadful time for the cause against life, and we could still use your help. 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. God bless you. Thank you so much. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Well, whether or not you've ever been to Israel, you roam the Holy Land every single time you pick up God's word and read it. But how much more do the sights of Israel mean to a Christian when you do actually have the opportunity to explore them in person? We're going to talk about that today with Reverend Dr. Paul Wright, who is president of Jerusalem University College, where he has taught biblical geography on site to thousands of students. And he is out with a new book we'll be discussing, Heart of the Holy Land, 40 Reflections on Scripture and place. Dr. Wright, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Janet, thanks so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Well, I know that you have lived in Israel for, what is it, more than 25 years? Is that right? Mm, something like that. We, 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 uh, we stopped counting. Okay. <laughs> so you stopped counting. What was your reaction the first time that you went to Israel? Because I've heard so many, I have not had the opportunity yet to go to Israel, but I have talked to a lot of Christians who have, and they say, you're just blown away. If you've read the Bible for any length of time and you start to see all these famous places, it really has this incredible impact on you. Did you have that sort of initial reaction? Uh, wow, this is over 40 years ago. I was a college kid and came over for three weeks and um, traveled the land with the school that I'm now the president of and uh, was just excited for the opportunity. And Israel was, was quite a bit younger then yeah. and more kind of rough around the edges in terms of uh, what was available to see and how to see it. And, uh, but I, I was so attracted I wanted to come back, uh, which I did. And I think the, the things that strike me are things that have struck me in the, in the years since. Um, and sort of slowly, slowly um, um, uh, sinking in. I, I need to go to uh, the same site dozens of times hmm. uh, to really sense it and sort of see it. Um, the line that I like is to see the land through the eyes of its former inhabitants. Hmm. And you can't do that quick tricking, tripping, right. um, although that's, that's uh, a way to begin. And uh, I think the land sort of grows and matures 
on us like any place does the sure. longer we live there. Sure. Yeah, yeah you yeah. know, I really liked what you said in the book when you when you really addressed this question of understanding the Bible and you say that geographical information fills the biblical text. And I wish you could explain that a little bit because I think that there is really a lot of truth in that, that when you read the Bible, when you study the Bible, when you believe the Bible, seeing those geographical sites that you cover in the book really does help fill in some of those gaps. How has that happened for you? Yeah, it has. I, it's, if you just open the Bible at random and, and close your eyes and point on the page, you're going to probably hit something that has geographical data or information on it. And it occurs, I think, in two different places or two different ways in the Bible. One is simply as a backdrop and a place for the stories that are being told. You know, Joshua went to Jericho and so on. Right. Uh, but the way that's more significant, I think, is when the biblical writers... Uh, knowing the land as intimately as they do, like anybody does, the place where they live, takes these geographical realities, um, whether they're climate-based or terrain-based or vegetation or animal life, uh, and then uses the the reality of those to point toward um, spiritual or Godward truths or ideas. Yes, right. Uh, like God is a rock or, you know, I am the good shepherd. Um, and and he makes the wilderness bloom, these kinds of things, um, which take us one level above just looking at the land to seeing how the land was actually looked at and and grasped and lived on uh, by its original inhabitants and those who still live here as well. Yeah. Uh, windows into the soul, you might say. Sure. I mean, that makes total sense. So when the Bible talks about Israel, I thought this was a good observation on your part. When the Bible talks about Israel as a land flowing with milk and honey, and we have that description in the Old Testament, the actual landscape of Israel would seem to belie that description, as you point out. How do we reconcile those two realities? Do you have people coming to Israel and saying, this doesn't look like milk and honey to me? Well, this is one of the one of the things that uh, people notice, perhaps first off, when they see that much of the land uh, is more desert land, uh, or all of it's kind of rough and tough for about six months out of the year when it doesn't rain. And our images of milk and honey uh, that we sort of grow up with are, uh, let's say, maybe North American based or blessing based, or or things along that line. And so we we tend to read it that way. Um, there have been a lot of suggestions as to, to how it fits, and the one that I like best actually uh, connects it to the seasons of the land and the places of the land of Israel, um, and and recognizes that much of the land is desert and always will be. Um, uh, throughout the year it is, a harsh and difficult place, a land of shepherds and a land of sheep and goats. And uh, the other half of the land, or maybe less than half of the land, uh, is is more of the agricultural land, the green land, the land that that uh, you know blooms up um, in the in the winter and springtime that we'd be maybe more comfortable in, uh, and permanent crops and orchard crops and things, uh, and so milk then being the product of the sheep that's at home in the desert and honey probably not the honey from the bees but um, a paste made from dates, hmm. uh, date palms. Uh, which are the best and the sweetest of the of the orchard crops. Mm. Um, so a land of, of, let's say, two different... The phrase recognizes the two different aspects of the land. Now, why is that important? Because the land of promise, which is flowing for you and adequate for you and bounteous for you, 
is a land that is both lush and blessed in the way that we typically think of lush and blessed, and harsh and difficult. Hmm. Both of those are part of the human experience, as we all know. Hmm. If we're alive, we know that. And, and um, both of them are actually part of the tangible reality on which ancient Israel um, and modern Israel still live. Um, so you're entering into a landscape that actually teaches you something about everyday life hmm. and the fact that we're in God's promise and in God's blessing, no matter which side that we're on. He's with us in any case. I love that. That's really neat. Yeah, yeah that, that is really interesting when you break it down that way. So when you're talking about Jerusalem, which, of course, is a highlight for visitors, you talk about yeah. the old city and you talk about some of the topography of Jerusalem and how God protected Israel from its enemies. Can you describe right. some of that for us, the, the valleys that were defensive lines uh, for most of the city and, and what surrounds Jerusalem that's so significant? Right, exactly. Jerusalem is a city of hills and valleys, very much like much of the country. Um, It's a city that is off any main natural route. It's not the kind of a place where you would necessarily pick to have a place that would grow up to be as important as it is. Um, And it's a city that's hidden away in the hills, uh, and the actual spot of the city itself in the hills um, is a kind of a lower ridge, um, surrounded tightly uh, by a higher circumference, kind of like being in the bottom of a bowl, hmm. uh, in a way, uh, which means when you're in the, and I'm talking about the oldest part of the city, the city of David, you know, the original Old Testament part. Today the city's huge, but the, the older biblical part. Um, so when you're there, you feel um, hidden a bit, uh, and that hiddenness can make you feel like you're protected, and Psalm 125, verse, verse 2, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people mm. from this time and forevermore. Mm. The mountains literally are, are surrounding, hugging you when you're in the city mm. and protecting you. Uh, but if it's wartime uh, and the enemy is coming, then the enemy is going to be close and higher than you and have the height advantage. Um, and your, you know, your bows and arrows don't shoot terribly far, but if your enemy has the height advantage, you're under threat. Right. And so you have something like in Psalm 121, um, uh, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Mm-hmm. And many people read that as, again, a sign of blessing, but I, I tend to read it as, I lift up my eyes to the hills surrounding me full of enemies. Where does my help come from? Oh, wow. And then the answer is from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Yeah. He made the situation in which we're living. And we have to keep in mind, of course, that, that as creator and as chooser of this city for Israel's uh, home base, um, he knew, again, this position of both vulnerability and strength. So it's sort of like the milk and honey idea. Yeah, that is so neat. We're going to have to go to a very quick break. We'll come back with Dr. Paul Wright. Heart of the Holy Land is his book. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. Janet Meffer today is proud to partner with Preborn to help save babies' lives. Well, my name is Dan Steiner, and I'm the president of Preborn. Ultrasound truly is a game changer. When a mom 
comes into a pregnancy center under pressure to abort her child. Perhaps the dad's gone. Perhaps her mother is pressuring her. Most of the time in her heart, she doesn't want to abort. But what she needs is something that will give her the strength to choose life against the pressures that are forcing her to consider abortion. That's the ultrasound. If she hears her baby's heartbeat and sees that baby on ultrasound, everything's different. Will you join us in saving babies' lives? Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Meffer today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. One ultrasound is just $28, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved, and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Thank you for being with us. It's great to have you here and great to have with us Reverend Dr. Paul Wright, president of Jerusalem University College and author of Heart of the Holy Land, 40 Reflections on Scripture and Place. And when you see the book, you'll also see a number of beautiful pictures of different sites around Israel. So you can kind of put together some of these thoughts that you've put together here, Dr. Wright, concerning geography and topography and tie it all together with the biblical text as you just did. And by the way, when you were quoting, I lift up my eyes to the hills, where does my help come? from. My help comes from the Lord. I love that passage, but I don't think I'm ever going to think of it the same way after what you just said before we went to the break. And that's a wonderful thing. When you go to some of these other sites in Israel, um, there's so many different things you can talk about. Bethlehem, for example. Now, one of the things you address in here is the actual date of Christmas, and we know it wasn't December 25th, but what of that issue of the timing of Jesus' birth? Yeah, this is a um, an idea that comes from a see a very close reading or plain reading of uh, Luke chapter two verse eight. Uh, there were shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night, and that's a geographical verse actually. Hmm. Um, and uh, in the fields has to be explained. Why would they be out at night? Has to be explained. Why are they watching their flocks out of doors and so on? Um, and if we, if we place the verse in late December, which is winter here, it, it's not nearly as wintry as some places in the world, but it can still be quite chilly um, and rainy and wet and miserable being outside at night um, or in the daytime, that time of year. Uh, the sheep and the shepherds are not going to be outside at night, number one, that time of year. Yeah. In the summertime, yes, uh, when the land can be quite hot and the daylight um, conditions can be blinding and so on, then you want to be out when it, in the night and the evening when it's more cool and more pleasant. Uh, the other thing is 
uh, in the fields, it says. It doesn't say they're just out, but in the fields. And uh, this is a, a seasonal geographical clue. Uh, the rainfall in Israel is seasonal. It happens, um, or the, the early rains, the beginning of the rainy season, usually around October. It ends something like March or April. Um, and uh, comes out pretty heavy. We get as much rain in Jerusalem and in Bethlehem as London does. Mm. So it can come quite a bit. Sure. Um, and, and this is when the fields are planted for wheat and barley and other crops uh, and growing. Nice and tender shoots in December, uh, which the farmer does not want the sheep eating. <laughs> um, and at the same time, the rain then is taking the more more arid part of the land, the more deserty part of the land east of Bethlehem, that typically is quite dry and difficult, the land of milk, as we talked before, and greening it up just enough in the wintertime that the sheep can go down there, Mm. where the temperatures are a little bit more moderate, a little bit warmer, and there's something to eat. Then they come back up into the fields in the summertime, (laughs) after the fields are harvested in April, May, and early June, and you have stubble left, and the sheep then will graze on the stubble, uh, and fertilize the, the, the ground, the fields at the same time, when it's warm enough to be out at night. So that clue, Luke chapter 2, verse 8, indicates something summerish or late summerish uh, for the Christmas event. I, I can't do any better than that, <laughs> other than not put it in December. <laughs> right. Yeah. Although the, I'm sure that would be hard to shift everybody's Christmas celebrations at this point. But I the- suppose. So I suppose so. Now, you know, it plays differently, of course, if we're in Australia. Oh, that's true. Right? Yeah, you it make does. a good point. You make it a does. good point. But because Israel is, actually, Israel is on the same, um, the same line as Dallas. Oh, how about that? Uh, or close to it. So, so uh, whatever climate you get there um, is more or less, well, not exactly, but... Um, we're not New England, right? And no, we're, we're not, not. We're not Sydney, Australia either. No, we can feel each other's in pain in the summer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. Yep, yep, yep. That is fascinating. So also, when you mention the Magi, this is from Matthew chapter 2, yeah. what does the geographical logic reveal about their journey, you know, following the star and whatnot? Right. Well, the star is a difficult one. And, um, you know, we had, what, a month or so ago, the Jupiter and Saturn coming together, and isn't that fun? Yes. And um, I took a picture of the two when they were almost touching uh, from a hill uh, that the wise men, the Magi, would have taken between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. They would have stopped and maybe seen the same, just kind of as a fun thing. Uh, But what the star was itself, I don't know. I can't comment on that. Um, But the fact that they came from the east and they brought frankincense and myrrh and this sort of thing uh, is more of a earth geography um, that is interesting. Um, Most folks... Um, identify the Magi with uh, people from um, what would have been ancient Persia or Babylon, something like that, and coming more or less the direction that Abraham came uh, over, which is interesting theologically, of course, yes. as well. Uh, but frankincense and myrrh are not products of that part of the world. Frankincense and myrrh, uh, the gifts that they brought, and even gold, um, South Arabia or the area of Somalia, a lot of gold coming from what's present Sudan. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, they also would have entered the land from the east, from the southeast rather than the far east. Um, perhaps they were Nabataeans. These people are known from Petra. Um, we have a prophecy in Isaiah, I think, chapter 60, uh, about nations coming, bringing frankincense and gold, 
and so on, on camel caravans, hmm. uh, and so on. Um, and that would place them more in a in a Arabian mode, um, which um, would be closer, uh, perhaps as well. Um, why on, on a suggestive point, I don't know what to do with it exactly, the Apostle Paul, after he uh, meets Jesus outside of Damascus, goes to Arabia right away. What he's doing down there, I don't know exactly, but there is early Christian connection uh, in that part of the world as well. Sure. So maybe a, maybe a, a beginning of a nation's coming to Jerusalem, and then evangelism going out idea Could there be. as well. I am not exactly sure. Why is it that the idea that they came from ancient Persia persists? Because of the word magi, I got it. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, and the the connection of of um, uh, uh, stargazers. I don't want to use the word astrology because that has different terminology today. Yeah, um, but they were um, sort of beginnings of science of observation of stars to track patterns to see if cause and effect can be found in patterns on the Earth. Things like this. Uh, up in the heavens, in the skies, uh, in particular. And this was something happening already in the libraries of Babylon and, and east of Babylon. So interesting. Yeah. What, you know, there are other things that you talk about pertaining to things that are there of significance in the landscape. You mentioned water, for example. But I want to, before we run out of time, touch on this issue of grapevines, only yeah. because John 15 is one of my very favorite yep. passages of Scripture where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, and whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that right. bears much fruit, for apart from me you can right, do nothing. Right, right. Great, great verse. Can you talk a little bit about this? significance of those vines, especially perhaps to the Jews in Jesus' day. Yeah, isn't this a great one here, actually? It uh, is. John chapter 15. Um, even though Jesus was a, uh, was a uh, English says carpenter, and he grew up around fishermen or lived around fishermen, he seems to know an awful lot about growing vines as well, based on how he describes them in this, uh, in this parable. Um, I am divine, you are the branches. And there are three different things he he says that are done to the vine. In John 15, chapter 2, he says, the one that does not bear fruit, is he takes away. Um, the um, one that does bear fruit, he prunes. And then if nothing happens, you're thrown away. Um, and uh, most folks read, the one that, bears, that um, doesn't yet bear fruit, he takes away, meaning something negative. Hmm. Um, and I, I think that we have evidence from the way that vines were grown in the land in Jesus' day and in many parts of the West Bank still today, that it's exactly the opposite. Um, the verb here, the Greek, ver- Greek verb here, um, uh, takes away, I think is better translated, he lifts up. That is to say, he takes it up off of the ground. Oh, wow. And here's the idea. Um, we think of grapevines on trellises. Um, we know, based on a early... Uh, first century, uh, Latin uh, Roman agriculturalist named Varro, who wrote a book on how to grow vines, he said that in the western Mediterranean, they use trellises. But in the eastern Mediterranean, which would include Judea, they just let the gr- vine grow right in the ground, mm-hmm. the branch right in the ground. And when it sends out in the spring its little tendrils and starts to get little tiny dots that are going to be grapes, it's actually taken off the ground. It's lifted up oh, wow. and propped up by a stone huh. so that the grapes can hang um, and grow without being um, you know, eaten by the bugs on the ground and things. Um, lifted up just before it gets grapes so that it can have grapes. 
And then once the, the, the vine is starting to, to shoot a bit, then you prune it to have better grapes. If it does nothing, then you burn it in the fire. Oh, my. I wish we had more time, but you'll have to get a hold of Heart of the Holy Land by Dr. Paul Wright. So good to talk to you, Dr. Wright. Thank you so Most much. Welcome. Most welcome. God bless you. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, too, for listening to Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time.